Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. everybody. Welcome to Resistance Recovery, and I am very happy to be with author, educator, musician, James Newell, who I had the pleasure to recently take a course with um, on Jungian Christianity, and we are going to be taking up that topic. So with that, um, James, could you just give a little sketch of yourself and your work and interest? Well, I'm, thanks, Pierce, for having me, and uh, I am... Uh... A musician, really. I've been a musician all my life, and uh, I'm kind of an eclectic musician, and so I found that I uh, wanted to explore more of my intellectual life. And I'd always, I mean, I've always had a rich intellectual life of reading, and uh, I quit school when I was 15 years old and went on the road with a band. And then, uh, but I was reading all the time, studying, and I found Jung when I was 18, uh, and I've been reading Jung ever since, and around. Uh, when I was 40 years old, I got a minority scholarship to a black school in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, Tennessee State University, historically black college, and I got my undergraduate there in psychology and went on and got a master's degree in uh, pastoral counseling and theology at Vanderbilt University Divinity School and then got a doctorate in history of religions. And since then, I've been teaching... Uh, college courses, mainly on world religions, but uh, started as the director of the Depth Psychology Alliance back, oh, probably six years ago, something like that. And I've been teaching uh, Jung courses through the Depth Psychology Alliance. We've got a certification program. We've certified now, I think, three or four uh, people as specialists in depth psychology. And we're now in the process of putting all those courses on... Uh, on video so that people can you know kind of take them uh, at their leisure and and our sort of graduate level includes the course that uh, you took with me which was the Jungian Christianity we're gonna do we did uh, Jungian Christianity we're just about to do Jungian astrology which are kind of diametrically almost opposite uh, areas of study then we're gonna do Jung and the wounded healer and which has to do with transference and countertransference and finally Jung and the arts and that's gonna be our kind of graduate uh, certificate after the uh, the main certification. And your core faculty in all of those? I am, yeah. Um, just for the audience and out of curiosity, I was looking at your your stuff online. So you're a student of Islamic music? Well, my my doctorate, uh, my dissertation, my doctorate's in history of religion, and when you do doctoral studies at Vanderbilt, you t choose a religious tradition and within that, I was kind of drafted in by an ethnomusicologist who knew my interest in music and, and in world music. And I had connections in India where I could study Kuali, which is a Sufi uh, Islamic mystical music. And so I, uh, yeah, I did field research in India doing Kuali. And to, to call it Islamic is these days, is words are, you know, words like Jung and Christianity and Islam 
seem to uh, have different meanings for different people. And so it is Islamic music. It's absolutely Islamic. There are people uh, who call themselves Muslims who say that it couldn't possibly be Islamic because music isn't allowed in Islam. Then there are other people who say that no, it's the it's what makes you a Muslim is is being a Sufi and 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 particularly doing these uh, practices with music. So that's anyways. I was clearly I'm on more on the side of of uh, Sufi <laughs> understanding and which is much more eclectic and sort of ecumenical and mystical. And the Kowali music is specifically designed to uh, uh, bring people into a state of ec- ecstatic communion with the divine. And there's and a whole, a, there's a whole a, mythological basis for all of that. Which and you'll... people dance to the music. Yeah, well, that depends. Uh, for example, the uh, you've heard of the whirling dervishes. They they have very stylized uh, dance routines, which are designed to go into ecstasy. Uh, originally, uh, this started with Rumi and and with the early uh, Mevlevi Sufis. Originally, it was spontaneous. Now it's very stylized and sort of. Uh, there's ways to do it. That's that that's always happens with religion. As you have someone has a revelation and they they kind of have a, a spontaneous relation to the divine, and then the priestly caste comes in and, and puts in regulations and forms to it. And so that's that's uh, the Mevlevi practice. Uh, but there's the Kowali practice doesn't really have dance. Matter of fact, there's a in some schools of thought you're supposed to not move at all because the more you restrain your body, which really wants to move to the music, the more it builds up the kind of like the alchemical mm-hmm. uh, container. It, it heats up the uh, divine essence, which eventually kind of bursts forth in an ecstatic trance. Fascinating, really fascinating. Well, with that, let's, um, let's jump into our topic. So Carl Jung had a conflicted and ambivalent relationship with Christianity going back to his childhood. Um, want to talk a little bit about that as a way of starting? Sure. Well, he, uh, he was the, you know, the sort of the archetypal preacher's son. He was, uh, his father was a, is a, a Swiss reform, but it's basically a Lutheran uh, church. He was a Lutheran pastor and theologian. And he had uncles, and he just came from a, a, fam, a family of clergy. There's a lot of clergy in his lineage. And he, um, as any, or at least many pastors' sons, he had a very ambivalent relationship with his father, but that was particularly uh, difficult for him because it was clear to him, even as a young boy, that his father had really kind of lost his faith. He was going through the motions, but this was a period when you know, uh, Darwin and science was on the rise and the sort of the mythological roots of Christianity just seemed completely ridiculous in the light of this new, the new uh, religion, which was science, you know, the sort of scientism was just beginning and, and taking over. And uh, his father was uh, really struggling with that. And he would try to have discussions with his father about that. And they were just, his father would just kind of regress into some uh, sort of priestly role where he'd just start spouting the doctrine. And, and Jung said, well, this is useless. I can't talk to him about this because he's just going to, he's not going to be my father. He's just going to suddenly fall into the role of the, the priestly uh, minister role. So uh, a lot of what his later work was, a lot of people speculate, and uh, the author of the textbook of the our course, uh, Jung in, uh, uh, what was the name of that book? Uh, 
Young's yeah. Treatment of Christianity. Young's Treatment of Christianity, yeah, by Murray Stein. Uh, he uh, says, and I think he's right, that Jung, a lot of Jung's work with Christianity was related to him trying to work out his own relationship with his father. But because he understood it as being archetypal work, he saw that he wasn't the only one and that the culture in general was struggling with this problem of losing their mythological roots, which once uh, Christianity had addressed, but now 2,000 years later, it was not speaking to the, the living needs of people, and uh, just as it didn't speak to the living needs of his father. And so his work with Christianity was trying to uh, both work on his own father complex which for Jung, that's not a pathological thing. Everybody has a father complex. Uh, and he was trying to work on that, but that at the same time, because it's archetypal means it's meaningful for, for the culture at large, uh, he published it and, and tried to have dialogue with theologians and like that and tried to help people understand why their faith, in order to have the kind of fervor where it really... Uh, in a lot, you know, the kind of ecstatic, uh, revelatory state that I was describing that the Sufis are seeking. For people to have that in Christianity, they would have to turn off their rational thinking mind and not engage in the scientific world. In other words, they'd have to sort of what uh, Jungians call a, a regressive restoration of the persona, where they just kind of go back to an earlier stage, because if they try to move forward, they have to somehow negotiate this hyper-rational modern world. And, and the myth of Christianity, you know, the virgin birth and the, uh, the whole idea of salvation through Christ and the, the whole, all the dogmas are problematic to the rational mind. And so Jung was trying to negotiate that gap. And at the same time, so, you know, it's really listening to you is kind of curious. I think both of us probably in our backgrounds, I'm a seminary graduate myself. Uh, we've we've watched the long, slow decline of liberal Protestantism, mainline Protestantism. So it looks like Jung is kind of, you know, back at an earlier, the decline was already happening. Um, and the rise, rise of science <clears throat> before World War I. Um, but then he had this mother who was just the opposite, who was actually kind of fey and uh, into spiritualism, so he's well. She was a, she was a real kind of uh, follower of what uh, they call folk religion, where she was very much of the Swiss people of the Swiss peasantry, and that has this rich sort of pagan roots. And so he was exposed to that as well. But his father was probably somewhat embarrassed of that in his wife. Uh, well, that that I, I don't really know too much about that. I'm sure Jung has mentioned it. Um, my assumption is that he, on on a conscious level, he. I mean, she went through all the motions. She she certainly did all the right things. You know, she went to church. She was a good pastor's wife, so it wasn't. Uh, but but then, you know, in the quiet of the night, when the shadows would fall, she'd start hearing ghosts or you know tell stories about these things that she'd heard as a child and that sort of thing. So Jung would get a little bit of both, and that was just part of uh, part of the Swiss life, apparently, at the, you know the late nineteenth uh, century. And he came to relate his parents, is it fair to say, with what he would call young number one and young number two? Um, well, that's a good question. I, again, I haven't uh, thought of that too far. Um, uh, I'm even con confused now which one is which one is which of young number one and young number two. But uh, but 
Your, your number one was Spirit of the Times, uh-huh. which seemed to be a little bit oppressive to him. And young number two was Spirit of the Depths. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Well, he was, yeah, so trying to, so young number one is sort of a persona thing, and young number two is sort of trying to uh, remain connected to his roots. And, uh, yeah, so you would, that'd be true to a certain extent, except his father wasn't, re- I mean, his father represented, represented the spirit of the times in, in the sense that uh, people were having difficulty negotiating this gap, try, trying to, as he, you know, as he would ultimately come up to formulate later in life, uh, people need a myth. They need to, to have uh, a grounding in, uh, in their own depths and their own psyches and his father uh, had lost that because he was so sort of dissociated into this identification with the dogmatic persona role of a preacher. Do we know at what point in Jung's career that he started taking a more active interest in the fate of Christianity in the Western world? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, this was uh, the la- really the last 20 years of his life. So he had done most of his major work. And a lot of people... Um, and alchemy was a big part of that work. And a lot of people who were very close to him, Tony Wolf is one who just thought that he was just losing it, getting involved in alchemy and writing about Christianity. They didn't really understand what in the world he was doing. Um, and alchemy, he saw as being particularly a rich source of this, what he called the rhizome or the roots of the uh, of the culture because it's connected to both uh, at least a... And attempt, the, the earliest attempts at a scientific worldview, alchemy is you know, trying to uh, look at you know, uh, physical matter and understand it in a scientific way, but they, didn't, they hadn't really developed science yet. So they still had this mythical thinking and it would get projected into the matter. And he saw alchemy as being uh, like a, the dream of Christianity. So he was very much actually interested in a lot of his early studies were about yoga and uh, about he was very interested in Max Muller and all of his uh, writings about the East. He was very, very interested in Buddhism and Taoism. Uh, but he was in India at 65 years of age and he had a dream about the Holy Grail and he realized that the dream, he, he, dreams for Jung always marked major turning points in his life. He, he maintained this connection with this, the roots that he was trying to get other people to, to help other people to be connected with. And he maintained this himself through his dreams and through active imagination. And in this dream, it, he understood it to be telling him that he needed to work on the complexes that were specific to the West. And because he had roots in the, you know, his uh, roots of his being were in European Western mythology, and also the most of his patients were that. So for him to continue to pursue this uh, Eastern things, very fascinating, but it ends up being kind of like a defense mechanism because it keeps him away from what what's really needs to be worked on. So because of that, at age 65, when most people are thinking of retiring, uh, Jung started the study of, uh, extremely difficult study of alchemy. I mean, alchemy is a, just unbelievably difficult and if you read about how he went about it he had to as he says brush up on his latin and greek because many of the texts were in latin and greek so he's reading those and it's all 
basically gibberish. The word gibberish actually comes from uh, the the name of a uh, of an alchemist, uh, and it was just very very difficult to uh, to even understand what's in there. So he would start taking notes of the different symbols and all that. And through years and years of doing this, he developed this. And as he's doing that, that's when he started writing about Christianity because he was seeing what uh, what the psyche was saying was missing in you know the 2,000-year-old and what he saw as being a Middle Eastern religion that was kind of plopped on top of all these pagan people in Europe. And uh, this was sort of, again, uh, repressing all of their natural... Uh, tendencies and he saw for example the Holy Grail and the stories of the Holy Grail and the uh, texts in alchemy as being unconscious uh, movement uh, the movement of the unconscious of the European psyche trying to negotiate uh, this gap the same gap that his father was experiencing and uh, although it's, it, it's I shouldn't say it's the same as his father because they weren't Alchemy was was negotiating that gap, not so much the Grail, because the Grail was uh, more uh, negotiating the gap between Christian religion and pagan religion. Alchemy is is brings in the scientific worldview because the alchemists were trying to be uh, and were early scientists or what they called natural philosophers at the time. Mm. So. So Jung spends this period of his life, much like many people today looking for spiritual sustenance in the east and by then he probably had definitely diagnosed the, 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 the what ails the west is a lack of spirit soul yeah that came early yeah that came early but it's really rather late that he said rather than look elsewhere we should dig down into our own roots yeah, exactly. He was uh, it's around nineteen, around the time he split with Freud when he wrote uh, Symbols of Transformation, um, which had a different name in German, but in any case, Symbols of Transformation, which is around 1911, 1912, 13, in that period is when he broke with Freud. He knew then uh, that what was lacking was a connection to um, myth and mythology, but it wasn't until the 30s, uh, late later 30s, that he actually began uh, looking at... Um, moving in the direction of alchemy and did he have did he quickly uh diagnose um why after the grail dream why the symbols and rituals of christianity were no longer numinous for for most europeans most yeah i wouldn't europeans? say i wouldn't say he did it quickly um there's two factors there one is that um he was really uh he had his own method of science, but he wanted to be scientific, and he considered what he was doing scientific, and so he wanted to uh, actually, he didn't want to just invent something from the top down. He wanted to see how it emerged out of the unconscious and be able to correctly read uh, the symbols, and so he had, his, I'm not, I won't go into the, the methods that he used because that would take a lot of time, but he, um, he did that, so that was one thing, just being very careful and very meticulous, and he's documented all these, which is one of the reasons uh, some of his work is difficult to read. But the other thing is that he knew, uh, if you ever read um, Charles Darwin, he uh, he had this theory of evolution long before he published it. Matter of fact, he didn't even publish it until someone else started to talk about it, and he realized, well, this guy's got the right idea. He's a little bit off, so 
towards the end of his life he did it. But the reason he resisted is because he knew there was going to be a huge outcry and blowback from, uh, you know, hardcore believing uh, fundamental Christians. And likewise with Jung, he knew that if he started talking about, for example, he says psychologically the Trinity is not, uh, focusing on a Trinity is not going to uh, be helpful. There needs to be a quaternity and it needs to include the feminine. Uh, without going into details as to how he came up with that. But he knew trying to tell people, and this is a central core doctrine, which, you know, was wrestled over hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And he's saying, well, that was great then, but now to move forward, we need to make it a quaternity. Well, this is this is just nuts if you're a theologian for someone to come in and tell you God has already determined that we need a, that that it is a trinity. It's not a question of what we need. It is a trinity. You know, so from the theological point of view, you don't just come in and say that you know better than God because God's already told us it was a trinity. So anyways, he knew that that was going to be a problem. So those two things, the one of being a meticulous uh, researcher and the other knowing that it was going to rattle some cages, uh, slowed down his uh, his articulation of it. So getting back to why the, whereas in a medieval Christendom, the rituals and symbols, we could still project onto them. They still had a numinous quality for us. Mm-hmm. And now we can no longer do that. Um, would you explain that in ways beyond uh, the rise of the enlightenment and, and uh, ration, reason and, and such? Well, not not beyond that. It's, it's, the thing is, they he never said that they didn't. Uh, they do even now. If a person you know really uh, kind of surrenders to the symbols, the symbols are very numerous. Especially someone who's got any kind of a Christian background. If you go into a church or you you hear the stories of Jesus or you hear these different things, it's certainly possible for someone to, especially someone who's hurting or uh, in in a place of need. It's possible for those things to to be numinous and to sort of uh, be healing and be powerful. But at some point, uh, you know, if you stay in that state, then you're fine. But if at some point you then get back into um, a place where you're you're thinking hyper, you know, we live in a society that's based on math and hyper rationality, and and those who dissociate best are rewarded most, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so. If you uh, try to get back into that, you're either going to cut that off completely or you're going to um, have a very difficult time. And that's what he's trying to do, I think, is to help people to, to, to be able to do that, to be able to include. He d- identified four functions uh, and you know, the thinking, intuition, sensation, and uh, feeling. And for someone to be psychologically healthy, they need to be able to bring all four of those online. So if you go into the church and you have this great feeling experience, but you can't bring your thinking function into relationship to that, then then there's gonna, you're going to have some kind of an imbalance. So his his whole idea of the process of individuation is to try and balance. Uh, there are two attitude types. He says introversion and extroversion, and there's four functions, and a healthy person is going to work towards having all of having access to all of those functions and being uh, in balance with all of them, so that the energy can flow smoothly and there's nothing being repressed that's going to kind of jump out unexpectedly into a complex that makes you do things you don't want to do. You know, compulsivity and addictions and things tend to be 
uh, triggered by these complexes that Jung identified as being activated. And so his, um, his interest in quaternity, that probably, there was probably a long buildup with that too. Absolutely. Looking at the four elements and the number four and mandalas through the, the Red Book period. So he, that was probably, is it safe to say that was a form that was sort of waiting for him to work with when he had his, his Holy Grail dream? Yeah, it's uh, it's very fair. I mean, he was he already um, you know was kind of tracking that idea. His um, you know his psychological types was uh, came after it came after his work with the uh, with the Red Book came after his split with Freud. It was the first major publication that he did after that whole period of, of producing the Red Book and doing all his act. You know, he developed this technique of active imagination, which uh, the Red Book is is a documentation of. And I uh, see this is uh, it, it's very interesting because um, this course that we're about to do in uh, in a couple of weeks on astrology. In astrology, there the four elements are an essential part. Of astrology, the there's the the different signs, and uh, and he had already in while it's still in good graces with Freud and corresponding with Freud, he talks about how he was studying because he was studying all these different myths as he was preparing to write Symbols of Transformation, and astrology, as he says, even in I think in a letter to Freud, he says that the uh, all of the knowledge, uh, all of the psychological knowledge of antiquity can be found. In the astrological texts, yeah. and uh, and so naturally he was interested in that, interested in how the myths uh, formed around that, and uh, inherent in that, in in, in uh, basic sort of um, uh, understanding and interpretation of just the elements, or not the I don't say the elements because that's, but but the the qualities of the zodiac, the signs, the houses. Uh, it, intrinsic to that are the four elements. So, the, in other words, there are fire signs, there are air signs, there are water signs, and there are uh, what's the other one? Earth signs. And uh, those four elements uh, pretty much exactly line up with the four uh, functions of uh, thinking, feeling, intuition, and sensation. And so, uh, so yeah, that was already there in his thinking. And as he lined, see, he always said that if something is going to be lasting, it has to be grounded in again the rhizome, in the, in the roots, in the uh, in the the core of of the psyche. And if it's if it's uh, sort of archetypally uh, congruent with the structures of the psyche, it will last. And so he wanted his psychology to be very much have a uh, mythological and, and a an archetypal basis, because if it did not, it it would not be something that would that could stand the test of time. And so he was. That's why he was so excited when he discovered alchemy, because alchemy is a process of turning lead into gold. It's a pro, not not just, not a static, uh, or even just a story, but it's 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 just an actual applying thought and effort into some sort of transformation and if someone is going to transform their psyche this forms according to Jung uh, the all of the outline for what he called the individuation process can be found in alchemy 
And when you study alchemy, you find that, see, in the ancient world, uh, astro- it wasn't until the Enlightenment that astrology began to be discredited as a scientific uh, discipline. And up until that time, everybody, including uh, Galileo, Galileo made a lot of money casting horoscopes. That's you know he was a great scientist, and, and uh, Sir Isaac Newton, the other great scientist of history, uh, was an alchemist. So uh, all of these things were part of of that intellectual tradition, and uh, he wanted to uh, make sure that he had he didn't want to abandon the thinking function and abandon enlighten you know the the all the hard won learning and uh, high level reasoning of the enlightenment, but he wanted to integrate it with this rooted uh, what what had gotten mankind you know however many in two, three thousand years uh, through that that much development, that much evolutionary development. So he comes to a conclusion on some level that Christianity as a trinity is no longer rooted. That it, in some sense it's become abstract from... Well, yeah, well, it's now missing something. He, he is, as you remember from the Course, his formula is that um, with the incarnation of God as Jesus, simultaneous, God has two sons. He has Jesus as the son, and Satan also at the same time falls to earth. And Satan is, you know, tempting Jesus and all that. But in order for there to be an all-good God, and now, you know, previous to that, he uses the the Book of Job as an example of God being very, very ambivalent and actually going into a bet and and dealing with Satan and actually torturing his most faithful servant. At, it's like God is actually being tempted by Satan to torture his most faithful servant in the book of Job. And of course, Jung is outraged by this. This is where his whole book, Answer to Job, which is a, quite a masterpiece, uh, comes out of that, you know, trying to wrestle with that. But the idea is that as um, Satan comes into being with God in human form, uh, if God is all good, where does the evil go? And there's no evil in the tr- Trinity. There's no there's no groundedness in the earth, and there's no feminine. Everything in the developing Christianity is all masculine, and so, anyways, it's 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 uh, difficult to sort of encapsulate the whole thing in just a few words. But that's the the thing that was the primary thing that was missing for Jung in the Trinity is the feminine and a groundedness to the earth. It was all very much air, very much uh, dissociated. It's all about getting up to heaven, uh, and earth is just nothing but suffering, and it's almost meaningless unless you can endure the suffering and go to heaven, whereas Jung is saying, well, that's that's kind of ignoring the reality of evil that's causing the suffering and bringing uh, people into recognizing that God... If God created the earth, then he also created evil. So we need to be able to deal with that idea and also, of course, include the feminine. He was very excited when the church finally uh, sort of officially recognized the ascension of Mary into heaven, saying that, well, this this is the beginning of what he had been saying for years, which is that the, the quaternity uh, needs to be represented. Yeah, so I mean, I think for a lot of people, if they're not um, grounded in Jung or have an experience with analysis, you know, the the mind is so binary and rational. So you've got the tr- Trinity, 
we need the fourth element, the quaternity, but now, you know, Jung kind of goes back and forth, earth, evil, um, the feminine. And so I think it, it, you need to, a shift in thinking has to happen where you can allow it to be multivalent like that. Exactly. Yeah. No, there has to be a flow of energy. There has to be a flow of, of understanding of exactly what's, I mean, first of all, most people aren't really, I remember a friend of mine said, uh, he asked a woman, I forget what the, uh, what the, there was some, some doctrine in the church and he asked her, Oh, do you, uh, do you believe in that doctrine? And she said, I don't know. I'll have to ask my pastor. And, <laughs> and that's sort of how most people, most people don't dig into the, uh, the mystery of the Trinity is this great New Yorker cartoon where the priests are all having a coffee break and the guy opens the door and says, come on, you guys, these mysteries of the Trinity are not going to solve themselves and <laughs> you can't take your break now. So, uh, you know, people don't really want to wrestle with all that. They want someone else to tell them to, 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 to go into the, the details of Christian theology and then just tell them what to do so they'll be safe. And so, yeah, so these these problems that Jung was working on aren't really problems for a lot of people consciously because they're not really wrestling with them. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of problems with it, it, The thing is the way it was formulated 2000 years ago was essential. It was the essential step. It's not like Jung was saying that these things were wrong and Christianity was wrong. He's saying it's, it's perfect for a certain developmental phase, but, uh, and, and frankly, what we see in culture, I may get in trouble for this part, but, uh, what we see in culture today is people who are not able to make that uh, that leap to, they're trying to do this regressive restoration of the persona. They're trying to, that's why we have fundamentalist Christians, why we have fundamentalist Muslims. We even have fundamentalist Buddhists who are fighting fundamentalist Muslims in, in Ceylon. So there's like uh, all this fundamentalism because people are having so much trouble negotiating this um, enlightenment mentality that they, they only feel safe if they can regress back to their safe dogma and just stay within that. And it feels good, but it, it leaves them out. Uh, this is why there's a, you know, a, a rejection of science and a rejection of any authority that's based on hyper-rational thought that people are having trouble. Uh, not that they can have trouble thinking, but they have trouble making their, if they think too much, if they think too far, it's going to threaten the roots of their uh, mythological system that they're embedded in. Yeah, and I think a lot of Christians, even even some, I think, with theological training, I mean, I think Victor White's a good example. Yeah. I mean, Jung can point to the fact that, you know, in, in, in the Hebrew world, in the Jewish world, they don't have a problem with saying that it all comes from God. The Provatio Boni seems to be this... You know, that's a Christian development. Yeah. Um, and it's, to me, it's very interesting because when you talk about evil with people, they still seem to fall into two camps. One, which is that it's got a real positive entitative status, kind of a Manichaean thing. It's out there battling the good. And then the other one that kind of leans into the sort of boutique buddhism which is it's um it's just ignorance it's it doesn't really exist and so for somebody to to come out and say no there's one source 
and it's inside of you and it's around you and it's we have to deal with it in a way that's um completely different than banishing it um i think that that's uh that's very radical yeah and jung isn't even saying that there is one source. he's saying that if we're gonna if we're gonna be in this worldview where we say there's one source then we logic dictate again there's the enlightenment comes in logic dictates that we have to include that i mean you know if there's got there's another source if it's not if 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 uh if there's only one source then everything came from it if you're going to say that that evil didn't come from it then there's and even if you're going to say that uh that you know like it's illusion you know the sort of the uh hindu buddhist thing that it's maya it's illusion it's it's a uh it just appears that way that's all right. It's kind of Murray Stein calls that doing an end run around the complexes. You kind of like you try and make a leap uh, up to the uh, to the top of the scale where you're not you're not really there yet. You haven't really gotten Nirvana yet. So until you get Nirvana, you still have to uh, you still have to accept the mess that you're in. You have to accept your karmic right. inheritance. And uh, likewise, if you're going to take the world, because see, with Buddhism and and Hinduism, you're in a cyclic uh, cosmology everything cycles through with with the abrahamic religions you've got a direct line you've got a beginning of time and an end of time and if you're not right by the end of time you're screwed so you have to you know and if that's so why the hell if this is a good omnipotent uh, omniscient uh, all good god why the hell does he banishing people to hell forever what how is that all good you know so there's there's lots of logical problems with with that and this is what jung is saying that you have to be able to you have to at least um, wrestle with those things or else yeah. you're, you're not being honest. Um, you see it, similar ideas in, in the Lurianic Kabbalah and also Jakob Burma. Burma said that God the Father was wrath and that the Son ameliorated the wrath of the Father. Um, so I was... Well, and yeah, and, and, and Jung says... That because uh, God was so uh, ashamed at his own abysmal behavior, in in that 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 uh, Job's uh, encounter with God enlightened Job to the fact that he's not God, and that he was he became conscious he became more conscious by his encounter with God, but God became more conscious with his encounter with Job, because Job said. What the hell, man? You told me to do this, this, this. I did it, and now I got boils, and I lost everything, and and you know, and God, God says, well, you know, you know, you're just a gnat. You you know, who are you to judge me? But afterwards, he's left with saying, yeah, Job's right. You know, so so according to Jung's theory in answer to Job, and he he admits he's not being rational. He's being very emotional about it. But he says, well, then God incarnated as Christ in order to experience all the sufferings that he inflicted on Job. And by doing that, he redeems humanity. So that's yeah. it. I, I think it's quite, you know, whether that's a um, counter-transference on Jung's part or not, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant, brilliant move. And it implies something about the creation that, you know, maybe you could call it panentheist or something, but it implies that God becomes more through its creation or at the very least becomes conscious. Exactly, and that's Jung's, Jung's whole point is that if you're gonna look at everything rationally, that uh, God, 
the, the whole of creation is uh, God's own evolutionary uh, experiment to become conscious of himself. And how does he do that? He does it through human beings. And so um, moving to Satan, I'm just pulling up a, something that I marked in uh, Murray Stein's book. Um, you know, Jung has this concept of enantiodroma. Enantiodromia, yeah, which is yeah. The, the, the tendency of the psyche to identify with one point of view and then suddenly flip to the other. Right. And what he seems to be suggesting is, uh, uh, this is page 158, this is Stein. In the secularism of modernity, Christianity has completed the development was latent in its beginning, an, anti an antiodromia from accentuation of the spiritual to its reverse, an accentuation of the material, from devotion to the Lord of heaven and his good son to worship of the Lord of this world, his disobedient son. And so is it fair to say that Jung had a real fear that, that, that we were in that an antiodromia? Um, well, I don't think it was a fear. I think it was a realization. Yeah. A recognition that, yeah, no, people are. And that's that whole thing I was saying earlier about the you know, big pharma and alchemy is that they, there's this, there is this identification with, uh, I mean, you see it in politics today. It, it doesn't matter what's true and what's not true. It's like, what's going to get me the material good that I want. If I get that material good, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the, one of the politicians said sometime back that if, uh, you know, what is history going to, you know, is this the right thing to do? And he said, well, it depends on, uh, it depends on uh, who wins. You know, there's no, there's no objective, there's no objective truth. Uh, there's no objective good. The only good is whether or not I win is, is what people are saying. And that's this valuing of material over, you know, the spiritual good is the good that's right. The good that's in alignment, that's congruent with my highest perceived value and if that highest perceived value is a christian god or whatever uh then it has to be in line with that but but people today are saying no no the uh, the question is who's got the most toys at the end of their life and who's got the most money who's got the most power who uh you know y you may have won the moral battle but uh if i crush you and throw you in prison or whatever i've won and yeah. that's uh so over the course of young's life having witnessed the two world wars and the Holocaust and the atomic bombs. He was, is it safe to say that he was really, really fearful about the future of humanity? I think he's, I think he was a realist. And he said, you know, I, I don't know where the quote, I've never actually been able to find it. Um, but uh, I mean, people quote him a lot, but that he said, um, someone said, well, is there a chance for humanity? And he said, if enough people do inner work, in other words, if enough people uh, are working on, on being congruent with their own psyches, then, then yeah, there's a chance. But if, if not, it, because the question for him wasn't even about people uh, identifying with the material, this enantiodromia thing of, of like being uh, too materially oriented. It's that uh, even, what, even if you're totally spiritually oriented, uh, you're always in danger. If you're not working on your inner work, if you're not... Uh, aware of what's going on in your unconscious, 
that means you're repressing it. And if you're repressing it, then you can be, you know, the, the most upright. The, and you hear it all the time of, uh, you know, this preacher who burnt down his church to hide his, uh, you know, whatever he did wrong or something. Uh, people who, the absolute most upstanding person suddenly breaks, suddenly cracks, and does something terrible. And what Jung was saying was that it's not, it's not having an atom bomb. It's, it's having it in the control of, of a human being. Because a human being will, you know, get into a rage or get into a complex. That complex gets triggered, and then the rational mind is—it doesn't matter. You you can even have a high-minded rational mind, but if a complex takes over, uh, the complex wins. So for Jung, there's a primacy of the individual over the group. It's not that it's a primacy. It's that the—I mean—I uh, mentioned this in the class that there's this wonderful book called *The Origins and History of Consciousness* by. Eric Neumann, and there's an appendix to that called The Great Individual. And the thing is that uh, all change, all social change, all collective change happens via an individual. You know, the Christianity happened via Jesus. The, uh, you know, Buddhism happened via the Buddha. There's a great individual who does something, and uh, this resonates on an archetypal level with so many people. Uh, he, he, Neumann describes the whole idea of the being able to negotiate the archetypal value, which is a, a new value that compensates for what's going on currently in conscious in, in culture. And if the person is uh, strong enough, has a strong enough ego and has a strong enough connection to their own unconscious and can uh, recognize that they're not possessed by the archetype, but they're in they're able to steward the archetypal energy, this constellates that same archetype in many, many, many collective people. And people say, ah, I can do that too. I have that archetype too. And because I have this kind of this uh, learned behavior thing, uh, because I can learn from observing this other great individual, I can also do that. So all great change, cultural change, comes from an individual, and then people learn from that. And are the other people that learn from it, are they in some sense primed to... to receive that archetype well if see see the formula is that um it, it just the same as with an individual uh there's a uh, a need for the unconscious to the, the the psyche according to jung is just like any other system in the, the biological system in the body and the body is always seeking homeostasis it's trying to seek balance if if there's too much salt in the system then it takes on water if there's too much water it, if it's too hot we'll sweat to cool ourselves off. If we're too cold, we'll shiver to warm ourselves up. There's this homeostatic balance being sought. Well, he says that works also in the psyche, and the psyche is trying to compensate when, when there's too much in one direction, the psyche, the unconscious psyche, will compensate with uh, these archetypal images. So for, in order for the so-called great individual that I was just describing to become prominent, it's because he has manifested, he has negotiated and uh, been able to uh, steward an emergent archetype that compensates the entire culture that he's a part of. So that's to say, yes, these people are primed for that because otherwise he wouldn't be compensating the same thing that they need the compensation for. So as that happens in other people who are more or less uh, on the high end of consciousness are able to move in that direction too. And then that becomes the value that people want that that's held up uh, valorized and and respected and so more people want to do that if as we see now 
this this uh, formula of the more you get, the better you are, the more material, that becomes what's valorized. And so people see somebody who's able to cheat the system and cheat everybody but come out on top and they say, yeah, we want that too. So uh, we need a, uh, you know, a compensatory archetype to come out. We haven't seen it yet. Hopefully something will come up. So in earlier times, the religion provided us the, me- the wherewithal, the means to do the inner work, and that is no longer readily available? Well, so- I think, it, no, no, it's, it's like, for example, when we were talking about Christianity, so Jesus came at a time when uh, it was all about the law. It was all about, uh, you know, he's, he's said by them of old times that you should uh, um, uh, punish your, uh, you know, punish the transgressor or whatever, and I say you forgive. You should. So, so he's, he's come up with a, um, he, he's embodied in an archetype that is very, very different from the wrathful God. He's come up with an archetype that God is all good and that if we are forgiving and if we are meek, and if we are all these things, we will be stronger. And uh, so he brought a compensatory archetype that was needed 2,000 years ago. It's not to say it's not needed now, uh, but it's to say that um, at that time, there was no question of hyper-rationality and all that. People were, were simply yeah. power-driven. So what he brought was carrying an archetype that was uh, ideal for... Um, you know, the emerging, I mean, he was very, very many, many centuries ahead of his time. It took many, many centuries for, for that to be sort of something that all of culture could begin to embrace until now it's the dominant religion in the world. But it's taken so long that with the development of science and other things, more is needed now. So Jung says to save the world, it depends on whether or not enough people do the inner work. And so is there something about now or Jung providing us with this roadmap of, for lack of a better term, of how to do this inner work? I mean, I I guess what I keep coming back to is it seems fairly obvious that not a lot of people are doing inner work and that the, the guy who has the most tools when he dies wins. That narrative is dominating. Well, that that's that's remains to be seen. Um, you know, uh, it just it remains to be seen that 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 narrative is still very 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 active. Uh, I, I I'm not willing to uh, say that that anybody has won yet. Um, <laughs> it, it's no, but you but you but in the course, and I've noticed this too. I think you took exception, and correct me if I'm wrong, with somebody like Edinger who felt that analytic psychology should have the status of a new religion or something. Yeah, well, but that's because that's, that goes completely... First of all, it's, it's, it's projecting his own need onto something that, that isn't there, because Jung, you know, Jung was perfectly capable of, uh, of uh, starting a religion if that's what he had been wanting to do. He didn't want to do that. He, he certainly was not claiming to be... Uh, any of the things that uh, Edinger and his later work uh, were claiming for him. Um, no, I don't think Jung was, was trying to do that at all. He was, resp- you know, Jung used the scientific method on all this stuff, and Edinger uh, fails his own scientific, Jung's scientific uh, method uh, when, he, when he says that stuff. What it's saying is that he's like really 
just very, very, very activated by Jung. Edinger is saying that. And, and, and Edinger is a wonderful student of Jung. And if you want to learn more about Jung, he, he, few people could teach you classical Jungian psychology better than Edinger. But, uh, yeah, no, he... The, it's not a question of um, <clears throat> starting a new religion. Uh, it's not a question of having a religion. It's a question of um, people getting back to these uh, these core values of the psyche which are represented by all of the great you know integrating if we could integrate all of Taoism and all of Buddhism and all of uh, Christianity and all of uh, is Islam and all of uh, Judaism and all all of the highest values of those things recognizing these um, these sort of uh, caveats which is that uh, when you um, when you identify with it each one of them at their highest level involves individuals having their own inner awakening and which is guided by clear boundaries because the, the you know as we've uh, we don't can't talk about that too much in the in this brief meeting today but the thing that happens with archetypes is that we either are alienated from them and we feel flat and depressed and uh, you know our our uh, diagnosis is going to be one of these depressive disorders or were identified with the archetype, which is identified with uh, anxiety disorders and things like that. So anybody who is in either of those camps is not going to be able to fully realize uh, what's going on. The person who's healthy recognizes that an archetype is an archetype, and they can steward the energies of the archetype, but they don't identify with the archetype. They have access to the energy of the archetype, but they do not claim... If I suddenly... If I say, oh, I have no spiritual life I don't do anything I'm just I can't get up in the morning that's not healthy if I say I'm God incarnate myself and I will go and do everything you know I'm gonna eventually I'm gonna drive my car into a tree or so I'm gonna have some kind of a crash of some kind so uh, the true the the healthy thing is to be able to admire a variety of people who have been able to steward these energies in generative ways that help other people and if people are doing those things, then you can have a hope for a healthy society. So I feel like I'm, you know, I keep pushing this thing. So there's a difference. I mean, the archetypal energies do what they do. They manifest under whatever constellation of circumstances. That's on the one side. But on the other side is there being something cultural that enables us to do what you just described, to be able to find that middle way with it, as opposed to the depression or the mania. I mean, is there, I guess what I'm getting at, is there something that culturally, structurally, uh, educationally needs to be in the world to allow that to happen that's not here now? Um... I wouldn't say that it's not here now. It, it, in each case, it's up to the individual to to make the choice, and and to decide. In other words, um, for example, Jesus. We're talking in terms of Christianity, so we talk about in terms of Jesus. Um, I can have a my own relationship with Jesus without it being mediated by someone who has a manipulative agenda, whether it's uh, you know the, the interpretation of the scripture or the or the church. 
or uh, and and this is what Jung was talking about when he talked about his own relationship with Christianity. Uh, I have to, I can make generative choices. We we know what's right and what's wrong, and we know what's selfish and what's uh, generative. Uh, there, there's it's possible to be so generative that we deny the truth of our own needs, and that's to a point that could be a good thing. Uh, but past that point, it's self-destructive. So there's, it's it. There need to be enough people. In other words, if enough people are doing their inner work, then enough people are going to make it self-evident that there are positive choices to make, and when we make them, everybody's better off. And that exists now. The Buddha, you know, was here. Jesus was here. Uh, Lao Tzu was here. There, there are other, you know, exemplars throughout history. Gandhi and you know great people who who are willing to do uh, at personal sacrifice, willing to do generative acts and to to live generative lives, as opposed to uh, living uh, acquisitive lives or, or uh, you know lives that were focused on on acquiring power only. So, in that sense beyond materialism mania could be kind of an attempt to control or use the archetype those energies yeah mania is a is tends to be a um a response to being powerless and it's it both are kind of surrenders uh, one one is a, alienated from the archetype but mania is when i i, I i'm so alienated that I, I, I need it and I, uh, and I allow it to possess me. I don't have the ego strength to, uh, to uh, control it. Uh, so as, as we say, you know, when I'm teaching these, and I, I hope, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in, in the course on Jungian Christianity, is that the, in the process of individuation, there's two phases. One is the first phase of simply adapting to society and social life and having a strong ego structure. It's only with, it's only through the means of a strong ego structure that then you can effectively uh, mediate and uh, steward the archetypal energies. Because if you don't have a strong ego structure, you will either be completely overwhelmed through uh, mania, and ulti- the ultimate uh, end of the mania is 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 the crash, which is going to be alienation. So you have no energy then. So you have to develop. You have to have these simple life skills of, of uh, you know, putting one foot in front of another and, and feeding yourself and your family or whatever. And then uh, once you have a strong enough ego to be able to do that, you can hopefully uh, negotiate those, uh, those archetypes. Now, when you can't do that, the way people historically have, uh, have done that is by uh, religious worship. When you're when you go in front of the altar in church, or you go in front of a you know a statue of the Buddha or whatever, and you bow, and you say, "All power is yours; I have none." You're you're achieving that that thing of stewarding the energy. You're you're recognizing that the energy is not in you; it's in this other object. Now that the problem with modernity is that uh, when we find it difficult to to uh, give all the power to that uh, to that mythological structure because our rational mind says well that's that can't be right uh then we need to do the individuation process where we where we have to find it within 
And that's, a, as Jung says, it's a much more difficult task. He most often would encourage people to go back. If you're Catholic, then go to Mass. If you're a Protestant, then, you know, go to go in and do whatever the practices are that uh, will reinforce your faith, because that still allows you to have a relationship to the archetypes, but they're removed, they're outside of you, you're not, uh, you're not kind of controlled by them, or, and you're also not alienated from them. So the so, historical method of individuation has been, always been the religious practice. Yeah. Uh, the problem is in, in modern, modernity is that we need to be able to find those archetypes within and, and again, negotiate that uh, alienation, inflation uh, cycle. Yeah, so that, that kind of gets back to what I was, might have been trying to ask, perhaps incoherently in the beginning, which is why, why aren't those rituals and symbols sufficient anymore? Well, they're not, yeah, they're not sufficient because um, right. we, you know, when, when, when I, it's harder and harder for me to go to mass and say that this grape juice is going to be transubstantiated and it's the blood of Christ. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not really yeah. the blood. So there's always going to be this question of, yeah, but is it really? And as long as that question is there, then you're, you're alienated from the, the energy. And it's not that you should, this question shouldn't be there. The question should be there. But uh, there is a mystery through which uh, the numinosity can be perceived. And we, when we, when we find that these religious uh, forms do not serve us in that way, then we it's we then have to embark on a uh, on an individual quest. This is you know again the, talking about twelve steps and uh, addiction. We a lot of people will say ah it's not in Jesus, but it's it's in Jim Beam or it's you know it's in whatever the substance is, and that's kind of the basis of Jung's relationship with Bill W. was explaining that someone is seeking a spiritual higher power through the wrong uh, vehicle right spiritus contra spiritum um because you know in my own case and i don't feel that i'm alone i'm somebody who identifies as a christian and who's very very interested in christian theology and spirituality and contemplative prayer and so on and so forth but i i simply am allergic to church sure. yeah yeah uh, well the, 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 what happens is uh, and it happens in any, I mean, I've never seen, it doesn't have to be just a religious group. It can be a corporate business. It could be anything that people, uh, one of the things I like, there's a, uh, a man named Meher Baba who I like, and he says that they take on an importance um, in their own right. So the role of being the minister takes on an importance in its own right. The, the, role, the real role of a minister is to steward these energies. But when the role takes on an importance in its own right, then you have then you have what I, uh, the anthropologists call a priestly role. You're in a priestly role. You're no longer experiencing the, the, the in in anthropology we separate shamanic and priestly religious specialists. And the shamanic specialist has a direct revelation. The priestly specialist preserves the revelation of of a previous uh, shamanic person. So uh, when we go to church, we tend to see all these people who have aligned themselves with these archetypal roles, but are not, you can just see that they are not really uh, surrendering to that revelation. Right. And, and getting this re direct revelation ourselves and, and being with people who are seeking those kind of revelations and have the humility. See, there's a tendency, because it, it, the role takes on 
an importance in its own right, then uh, the ego attaches to that and there's no humility. And, and you cannot be in relationship to an archetype without being humble. If you are not, then you're going to be possessed by it. And that's what we see so often in, in religious uh, traditions is that people are possessed by the role, the priestly role or the archetypal role. And this is, if, particularly if you're trying to be humble and experience a revelation directly, it's, it just triggers everything when you see somebody just bullshitting their way through a, a role. Yeah, and I, I talk to so many clergy people that say when they finally wandered down into the church basement, and just watch the AA meeting, they were filled with a, with a kind of uh, nostalgia or longing for what didn't happen upstairs. Um, yeah, I've never heard that, but I can see why that would be true, yeah. Yeah. Because that's where, because people are really um, looking for that there. A lot of times in upstairs, they just want someone to, you know, read the scripture, get it over with, you know, what time is 11 o'clock, there's a ball game on later, you know. There's not, there's not a real seeking for re direct revelation. And reve revelation is painful. Revelation always means, you know, the, um, Jung said that the encounter with the self is always experienced as a defeat by the ego. So uh, if we're actually, and, and the self means any of these archetypes, whether it's the archetype of Jesus or the archetype of the Buddha or whatever we're looking at, it's when we really are bowing before that image or, or in, in touch with that archetype at all, it will be experienced as a defeat by the ego, and that means it's very, very painful. So all these revelations are very painful, and, and you know the, what's going on in the basement is often you know a group of people who've all seen their lives just completely crash to such a degree that they're all very, very humble, and and they're they're crying out for a vision, as the Plains Indians would say. They're they're like wanting that connection to the spirit so badly. They sought it in the bottle; it wasn't there. Where the hell is it? And so you really have that sense of waiting on a vision uh, in, in a 12-step group and in, in a group that, of people that are hurting that badly that they're willing to to really uh, relativize the ego. And, and it's very difficult for someone in a priestly role to do that, especially when everybody else is projecting onto you that you're something better than them. Um, this has been fantastic. I'd like to finish just looking at one other thing that's kind of relevant to some of the other people I've interviewed, um, folks who identify themselves as sociologists. Mm -hmm. So I am on page 169 of Stein, and he is talking about the assumption. And he's saying um, that the amnesis, anam, 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 anamnesis, yeah. Anamnesis. The, the, get, getting, the, getting the history, yeah. Yeah of Sophia has begun again in anticipation of the next stage of development in the biblical Christian tradition. When the feminine is recalled to the realm of deity, a hieros gamos, a sacred marriage is imminent. And so there are a fair number of people that are very interested in this notion of the Sophia, the divine feminine and what it could do I mean obviously this would be the fourth thing? Um, could you just break down a little bit of how Jung would understand the Sophia, the wisdom of God? Um, well, it it uh, he te he tended to um, 
speak more. He spoke all about all of it in terms of the feminine, just broadly, the earthy feminine, the feminine that, I mean, it's all those things that I was just saying, that the, the ability to be vulnerable, the ability to be grounded in the earth, the ability to be uh, feminine rather than masculine, which is to say receptive and uh, uh, recognizing nature and the power of nature and um, p taking the, you know, as Lao Tzu would say, taking the, uh, the, uh, the lower position, um, which he says the sage always takes the feminine way, if you read the, the Tao Te Ching. So I, I think he would certainly think about it in those terms. But he also th talked about Sophia in, in relation, or the feminine in relation to uh, Mary and, and, you know, the assumption of Mary and all that. But the, just the idea that, um, that there's a balancing, see, for me, wisdom means a balancing of the head and the heart. And there tends to be, you know, in, in uh, the modern identification with the Enlightenment mentality, it's all this dissociated rationality, whereas um, wisdom brings in, you know, if you look at the wisdom of Solomon and all that stuff, it brings in compassion, the idea of compassion being wedded with uh, rationality. So rationality is not, it definitely is not dominant or above compassion. At the very least, it's uh, balanced and usually with compassion just a little bit uh, higher than uh, than rationality. That, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... No, no, that, that, that's wonderful. Um, because, you know, there are these folks that make a lot of the uh, Russian sociologist and... Um, so it's a, it's a current that's trending in theology and it's just... I'm just sort of waiting for it to... I didn't you. know that. that I, you know, I just I recently recorded and posted a, a song called Searching for Sophia. I didn't know that, uh, that this was a trend in, in theology. I'm glad to know that. Yeah, look up the Russians, Russian sociologists, Bulgakov, Soloviev. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, some John Milibank, who's like great neo-Orthodox theologian today, said that that is probably the most creative thing happening in theology in the world today, hmm. coming out of Russia. Well, that, yeah, that would be uh, what Jung would have, as part of Jung's uh, prescription, you know, for Christianity would be that. Well, James, this has been a real pleasure. Um, and could you give the audience some indication of how they might find you or uh, your organization? Sure. Um, we're the, yeah, I'm the director of the Depth Psychology Alliance. Uh, I don't know the web address off the top of my head, but if you just search Depth Psychology Alliance, you'll find it. My courses are slowly being um, migrated over to www.depthpsychologyacademy.com and uh, I'm adding them all the time to there. And yeah, we've got uh, many of the uh, introductory classes for all these courses can be found for free just on YouTube on uh, the Depth Psychology Alliance uh, YouTube channel. And if somebody's interested in your work as a musician, uh, I have a, a little um, YouTube channel called uh, uh, American Mythos. So if you look up American Mythos on uh, YouTube, you'll find it there. And uh, I have a website, jamesrnewell.com. Excellent. 
Well, well thank you for having me, Pierce. It's been fun for me. To, I like, as uh, as I said, I I can talk about this stuff forever. It's my favorite. Oh, it was thing. great. I learned a lot. Thanks. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.